If you take your Bibles this morning, turn to Acts chapter 6. I'll be there in a few moments. We'll continue our study, having taken a one-week break over Easter. Uh, today, if you look up the, the board for a second, our text is 6, 8 through 760. <laughs> so let's go ahead and stand. <laughs> well, somebody go get those five hour energy drinks for us and I'm not gonna read all the text, but I it is it is a comprehensive thought. And I'll leave out some of the historical stuff here and, and get to the point and then may come back to some some sub themes here in the text at a later time. But in Acts chapter 6, verse number 8, the Bible says, it's a pivot here in our uh, history of Acts, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and the Cyrenians, and the Alexandrians, these are people from Africa, and of them the Sicilia and Asia, disputing, the word means debating, with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned or persuaded men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people. This story sounds familiar, doesn't it? They did very similar things to Jesus. And the elders and the scribes came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. And set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, meaning the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all that sat in council looked steadfastly on him, and they saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now, this very well could be just a, a, a kind countenance, or it could be uh, like the Shekinah glory of God that's shown about Moses' face. The text isn't specific, but the way he looked caught the attention of all his accusers. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? Now, Stephen enters into a historical dialogue about the history of Israel. And he references Abraham, Moses, and Joseph. And, and the idea, which I'll get to in a moment, is that the, the, the people of Israel have long resisted the prophets, the true prophets of God. And that just like the people were once against these men, you are now standing against me. And so in, in verses 2 and 3 here, he talks there about Abraham. Uh, in verses 9 and 10, he moves on to talk about Joseph. In verse 20, he speaks of Moses. And, and you may look in verse 35, because this carries the heart of the, the whole idea of this historical argument. And this Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and delivered by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. And he, Moses, whom they rejected, brought them out. After he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and by the way, Stephen had just been doing wonders and signs in Israel, in the Red Sea, in the wilderness for 40 years. So uh, he concludes this sermon, the longest in the book of Acts, really basically saying you always reject what God's trying to bring in truth. So in verse 51, he says this, 
ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do you now. And that's the idea of the, of the sermon he just preached. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which have shown before the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now betrayers and murderers. Both of the prophets, going all the way back to Jeremiah and further to Jesus. And when, thee, when they, these religious men from these different synagogues, heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Now, this isn't in humility. This is an anger. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven. And can you imagine? And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. We would know him as the Apostle Paul in time. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. For a few moments today, I want to talk to you about indomitable grace. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, for what you have recorded here for our learning, our admonition, Lord, for our example. And Lord, I pray for your help for all of us, Lord, that we might receive grace the way Stephen did. And I ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much for standing. Acts chapter 1 through 6 has recorded for us the rise of the early church and its initial steps in obeying the great commission that Jesus gave to take the gospel into Judea and to Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the world. Uh, in Acts, we are told that the disciples had filled all of Jerusalem with their teaching, meaning and implying the teaching of the gospel. These early chapters have focused and spotlighted Peter as the leader and the most outspoken spokesman of this early church. But this passage marks a transition. It's a pivot point in the book of Acts. Uh, the history of the church now burgeoning with people, now has grown to thousands, if not tens of thousands of members in Jerusalem. And Peter and this group of disciples have, have I, as I've said, filled Jerusalem with the gospel, taking, as Jesus commanded, the gospel to the Jews first. But as the text intimates here at these closing verses, another figure looms large on the horizon, uh, a person of transition, of expansion, the one they call Saul here, whom we know would become the Apostle Paul. But bridging the gap between these two giants of the faith, Peter and Paul, is the story of the man, Stephen. Now Stephen, though spoken of briefly, is a fascinating biblical character. There is more said about this man's character and his countenance than probably any other person in the entirety 
of the New Testament, of course, other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And as I've already mentioned, interestingly, so much of His life and the way He lived His life, to describe briefly, really mirrors that of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a good man going about doing good. He did wonders among the peer, uh, people. He was accused for doing good. He was brought before a council. And, and, and we know in time he, of course, was uh, killed for his faithfulness. He, he was a type and a beautiful picture of what a Christian is supposed to be looking like his, uh, his master, Lord Jesus Christ. Even in his death, he mirrors the words of Christ when he says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. Here, Stephen says, lay not this sin to their charge. Stephen is described as a man who is full. He is filled. He is filled with wisdom. He is filled with power. He is full of the Holy Ghost, all combining to make a man full of indomitable, irresistible grace. He is one of only three men in the New Testament other than the disciples to perform miracles. I mean, he is in rarefied air and company. He was venerated also among the people, the church, the people themselves, not only God, saw him as a remarkable man. He was the first of those elected by the church to serve in the role of what we call deacon to help administrate the needs of the early church. So he was held in great favor among the people. And quite possibly, um, you know, some people sow, some people water, and God gives the increase. But it's quite possible that his life and his words, his character, his testimony and handling of the Word of God before this synagogue of men had a profound uh, impact on the Apostle Paul, who we know later in an encounter with Christ, he himself became a Christian. Now, while the disciples preached to Jews... And, of course, Paul would later primarily to the Gentiles. Stephen bridged a gap there by preaching primarily to Greek-born Jews. The synagogues mentioned here were primarily filled with a membership of people not born in Jerusalem or born in Israel, but were rather born in the Asian and the Greek countries around Jerusalem who were proselyted by the Jews, became practicing Jews and leaders, and attended these synagogues. And so Stephen's kind of bridging the gap between Jew and Gentile. As much as any man in the Bible, Stephen belongs to the rare company of Abraham and Moses and Jeremiah and Paul. Given this incredible gift of actually seeing, you know, the transcendent Lord in, in heaven itself. Stephen loved God immensely. Stephen obeyed God completely. He was submitted in life to the Lord, and with all of his heart he believed God. <clears throat> Though what was written of him was brief, his impact looms large. And in these verses, Luke records for us um, the longest sermon in the entirety of the book of Acts. No higher praise could be spoken of his character, of his courage, and of his countenance than that which is spoken by God of Stephen in our text. Now, God used Stephen not only to help the church, to administrate the church, and to care for the widows of the church, but to preach and declare the gospel, which he was now doing in our story in the temple. And as happened to Peter in his declaration of the gospel and doing miracles and wonders, as Stephen was now doing, 
This captured the attention of the religious elite that were now attending in uh, Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us it was a, a group of a synagogue of men. Now, uh, some people group these five names listed into three synagogues. Uh, we don't know how many. It's not the point. These were religious leaders from around the known world who are now <clears throat> disputing and debating with Stephen, no doubt from the Bible, you know, who Jesus Christ was and how to serve God. And so these men assembled together and they've been dis disputing and, and arguing with this man. But in utter frustration and inability, these men could not refute his wisdom. That means his handling and knowledge of the Word of God, nor his zeal and passion. Because this man had it. And these men were probably dry as a bone. And they looked at Stephen as a wonder. And the Bible says they could not, verse 10, refute him. And so in, as similar men had done just in history before, did to Christ, this evil group of religious leaders persuaded men to falsely accuse Stephen, twisting his words. And the accusations were these. Stephen is a man who blasphemes our God. Stephen is a man who blasphemes Moses. And by that he means the law that Moses had given. That he's taking the word of God and twisting it and thereby blaspheming the God of heaven. Ironically, the truth was, is these men were denying the scripture that God had given and twisting it. They accused Stephen of supporting Christ's claims to destroy the temple. But Jesus made it plain when he said, tear this temple down, I'll raise it again in three days. He wasn't speaking of the physical temple, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And of course, he'd already proven that he would, he would do that because he had done so. So now in verses 1 through 14, or 11 through 14, uh, their claims are, are not completely unfounded. Stephen is differentiating between Christianity and Judaism. Um, he was proposing that there are some changes that need to take place. But the changes were not blaspheming God. Rather, they, what Stephen was doing was saying God has fulfilled His law. He is doing what He said He would do. And if you would Look at your Bibles. If you look at your word, you would see that that is true. And they were distorting what Stephen was saying. Well, these men, you get this. Have you ever lost an argument before? And it's frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> it's never happened, but I, you, you, you. I'm sorry, Terry. <laughs> so, um, these men became angry. Instead of being repentant, they became outraged. And so these men began to accuse him. They grew increasingly violent. And, and this is fascinating because it gets to my point in a moment. The anger they, they get, they can't help but notice his, his face. Like, guys, look at this guy. He looks like an angel. Now, I don't know what the countenance of an angel looks like, but it's it's got to be radiant and beautiful and amazing and maybe even a little bit intimidating. It's, it's, it's something that God gave. And through all this anger and vitriol, the grace of God stays upon him is the idea. And so he's, he continued to argue with them and, and, and argue their, their claims were false. And, and he's, he's nullifying their claims about the temple worship and how to worship God. And so he gives us long this sermon, and you, and you should read it. It's a fascinating history of the Old Testament, really, in a few verses. But his whole point is this, very quickly, is that 
God's activity is not confined to Jerusalem. It's not confined to the temple. He goes back and said, hey, by the way, God was active with Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. He worked with the patriarchs when, when, when they lived in places other than this country. God has always been active with his people in a world and a sphere far la uh, larger than the one you're making. And that's his point. He says, and another point is worship to God is not confined to the temple. As in Jeremiah's day, they had, they had really grown to temple worship and a kind of idolatry where only worship could occur here. And, and as Jesus had done, and really David had done over and over, they were making the point, you could worship God in some place other than the temple. The temple going there uh, as a part of worship is important, but, but God is bigger than that. These walls don't contain an omnipresent God. And they had lost sight of that. And, and the third thought was, is that often those who claim to be God's people are on the wrong side of a right man. There's been people who claim to be following God, as they did again in Jeremiah's day, in Isaiah's day, and, and, and even in David's day, who they were making these bold claims in Joseph's day. We know God, but the things they stood for and the men they supported were not the people that God was for, the things that God supported. And so his idea is you've rejected Moses for a time, you rejected Joseph for a time, and now you're rejecting, you rejected Christ and, of course, killed him. And, and these accusations against him, of course, it infuriated them. And the Bible says they grabbed hold of him. And, of course, this would have been violently. And they took him out of the city and they, they stoned him. And Paul was present. Saul was present. And for whatever reasons, he had some authority. They laid the garments at Stephen at his feet, implying he had some culpability. But the Bible records for us, now I want you to think about it. Just think about the last argument you've been in. All through it, he maintains grace. He has the countenance of an angel. Okay. That's hard to do in an argument, a debate. It's harder to do when people grab a hold of you violently. It's harder to do when they're dragging you. And then they begin to throw rocks at you. But he never lost his composure. He never lost the countenance of God. He had indomitable grace. It was an amazing thing. And God, in reply, granted him something that very few people have seen. Stephen looked up, and the portals of these worlds split into another dimension. And can you imagine? He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think it went like this, but I think it gets the idea. Way to go, Stephen. What a privilege as his soul departed to glory. Historically, this scene and chapter is important. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. His life and death now, as we'll, we'll learn sh shortly, catapults uh, the church from Jerusalem all throughout that area of Asia and into the Gentile world. My intent, very briefly, is to look at this passage as a whole, but I do think it merits for a few moments. There are other sub-lessons here that maybe at another time could be preached. One of those would be, anyone who ever preaches from a pulpit or shares the gospel should have some mastery over it. It's important that you and I know the Word of God. In part, persuasion comes from competency in handling the Word of God, but so too does it need to match our character. 
A man and his message go together and they ought not be incongruent. To a degree, all of us are hypocrites, but to a uh, degree we can mitigate that, we should. Because we see that in Stephen. There, there's no disparity between the man and his message. Preaching, proclaiming, and the message go together. As does wisdom and passion. Zeal must have knowledge. And Stephen could not be refuted because he had all those things. What we say, how we say it, and the person we are are not separable. And we do damage to our faith and testimony when we handle ourselves and our message in a hypocritical way. Of course, there are other lessons here from history. All too often, God's people, or those who claim to be God's people, are on the wrong side of an argument. We often support people who God may not, and that's a, that's a whole other lesson. And then number three, this merits attention, not today. Sometimes the, less, the, the, the customs and sacred cows that we hold on to really don't find a place in the Word of God. Often Bible truth is often at odds with the things that we hold very religious and dear. And if what we do can't be supported in the Word of God, then it, it can be debatable and discussed, and that's another sermon. But, having said that and feel better about it now, the larger portrait here really is about Stephen. It's where it starts and where it ends. And, and the way that this man handles himself and his indomitable grace. In chapter 6, verse 5, we are told that he is a man full of faith. Um, the same phrase is used in 6, 8, he is a man full of faith. To be full of faith means that this man is full of belief. Here's a man who without question believes God. He believes that he is and, and that he, he is the person that he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do. He believed that what he was doing was what God had called him to do, and he believed it with all of his heart. He was called to serve God, and he was doing that without reservation, so he was full of faith. We also, he was told a man full of the Holy Spirit in 6.5 and in 7.55. Every believer here today is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We are sealed by that Holy Spirit, and we are kept into the day of redemption by that Holy Spirit. But the idea of being filled here is a man, that he is a man who is controlled by, he is guided by, that he submits to the leadership of God in every area of his life. You and I can be indwelt by the Spirit, but the Bible says we have to yield to the Spirit so we can follow the Spirit. Now here's a man who exemplified what that means. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, a man who lives and does what Stephen was doing. He was filled with this. He let God be the guide of his life. And there's something interesting said in, in, in chapter 6, verse 10, that he spake with a wisdom and a power. And that, that these, this filling of these things empowered him and created accounts upon him that was noticeable. So the focus on is Stephen's faith made him a believer and his being filled with the Holy Spirit made him a follower of God. He had power. And this is what I'm going to use. Stephen was a man filled with grace. A grace that overcame, that overwhelmed, that could not be refuted, that was life-changing, and was indomitable in its ability to overcome difficulty and hardship. Now that's being filled. 
He was strong. The Holy Spirit controlled his spirit, his countenance, his attitude. It controlled his speech. It controlled his conduct. It controlled his behavior. It guided his, his spirit, his attitude. The Holy Ghost gave him the power, now listen to me, to perform miracles out there. And that's something. But every human being in this room knows that someone who can be grace-filled in trial and opposition and when treated unfairly and do right in that moment, that's a greater miracle right in here. When you hold your tongue, that's a miracle sometimes. You follow me? That's a big deal. It's not you. You're human. That's grace. When someone slaps you and you turn the other cheek, when someone asks you to go a mile and you go two, when someone accuses you and stabs you in the back and you say, I got it. I can handle that. When you can love your enemies. When you don't have to revile back. Hey, friends, that's power. That's a miracle. That's indomitable grace. And this is what happened in Stephen's life. I would venture to say that the biggest task in any of our lives is bringing ourselves and our emotions and our words into the submission and the obedience of Christ. Actually allowing the grace that we have access to to be appropriated in our life in a way that others see it and go, wow, that's an angel. Man, mastering self is life's hardest task. But this man did it. No other man in the New Testament is credited so emphatically as being full, controlled, guided. All these things work together for grace. He was full of wisdom, faith, the Holy Spirit, true. But it was the outworking of all of these powers in him that allowed him to withstand evil men. And for them to even, even people anger at him go, man, that guy's different. This grace was evident to the church. Not just to evil men, but friends and family, the church. They looked at him and said, man, if we're going to find someone to be an administrator and a leader over us, first guy we're going to pick, Stephen. And most importantly, God looked at his grace. Jesus looked at his grace and stood up. Stood up for Stephen as he died. The opening of verse chapter 6, the church was given direction to find good and godly men to help lead them, and Stephen was chosen. The first man. When God looked up, <coughs> or looked down and saw Stephen, and Stephen looked up, he thought, I can trust that man with power. Only three men besides the disciples. I'm going to let that, I can trust. He's so full, he can do these miracles because. He's full of the Holy Ghost. Standing before vile and wicked men, intent to destroy him, he was full. And as those same men took his life, he had so much grace as, Lord, don't lay this to their charge. That's a man of grace. Time with God transform Stephen. The challenge for us as we reflect on this text I think is obvious. How grace-filled are we? 
as evidence, by the way, we respond in life, live our life. To what degree do we have power over ourselves, power over our tongue? Look here, just simply power over this, to smile or not smile. To affirm rather than be a critic. The way we live, interact, face challenges, are involved in disputations. By whom and what are you controlled? You know, as I thought about this, there were some measuring sticks in the text for me. I, I'm looking here for examples. There'd be multiple. But I, I, so I'm going to back up. And Stephen's life. Church was in need. Thousands of people. The apostles were being pressed too much. And so the apostles say, hey, guys, we can't handle all this. Go out there and find seven men full of wisdom and the Holy Ghost. In other words, these are men without title currently. But we're going to, those men who are already doing what we need them to do, we're going to come over here and ask them to do this. And so they find Stephen. So first thing is this, to what degree are you willing to serve and help those around you? I think that's a measuring stick of how grace-filled we are. To what degree are you willing to sacrifice your life, your time, your resources, whatever it is that you think you, you, you deserve, and lay that on the altar at somebody else's need? To give part of yourself for other people's benefit. Those who do that are in some measure filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. The time of the church here... Um, I need help. The staff guys need help. You, can't, you cannot meet the needs of a myriad of people with three or four people. So there are times I'm going to go ask, you know, Brother Jerry for help. Or I'm going to ask Brother Chris for help. I'm, I'm going to go find guys. I need help. But here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to, we're not going to look for someone who's not doing something and now ask them to come and do something. Does that make sense? Now, we're going to look for men who are already full of wisdom and the Holy Ghost, men who are already guided by the Spirit, men who are already, women who are already serving, and ask those people, hey, you're already doing this, but here's a title, here's some authority, now go do that. In other words, we're simply just directing people who are already proven to be servants. And people who don't serve, you know, it's hard to ask them to come serve. We don't look for people who might work, we're looking for people like Stephen who, without being asked, without being recruited, without any other incentive than grace, are already doing the work. Stephen was named a deacon because he, look up here, he already was one. And he was just given a unique assignment. There's a text I've long mused over, and it's Luke chapter 16, verse 10. It says, He that is faithful in that which is least is also faithful in that which is much. He that is unjust in the least, well, he's unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you the true tre treasures? I think that means people. If you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who will give that which is your own? See, a measure for us, a look in the mirror measurement for you and I is, are we serving? 
Do we love people? Are we contributing? Do we care? Are we adding something to the place that we're attending or to our neighborhood or to work? Do we do things without obligation and title, not because we're expected to, but because we love God or being guided by His grace? Caring for others is a measurement of grace. And then this one, of course, is obvious in the text. We know we have a measure of grace by how we navigate difficulties, situations, circumstances, and difficult people. Again, to Luke, the author of Acts. Now, that's what he says. And if you do good to those which you do good to you, well, what thing have ye? For sinners do the same. And if you lend to them to whom you hope to receive, well, what thank ye, or what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But, okay, I'm inserting this word, grace. Love your enemies and do good and lend, uh, lend helping for nothing gained. And your reward shall be great, and you shall be called the children of the highest. In other words, here's the difference. Any, I can be nice to anyone who's nice to me. I'll give to you if you give back to me. I'll love you if you love me. But what if you don't love me? What if you don't like me? What if you're not good to me? Matter of fact, what if you're mean to me? What obligation do I have as a Christian to exercise the grace that I have and love you anyway? To be nice. To be reviled and revile not. You compel me to go to mile. Okay, I'll go too. Give me your coat. Oh, here's my jacket also. See, that's the place for grace. That's Christianity. I have no time. First Corinthians 6, people are fighting in the church. To the degree they're going to law. They're suing each other. And these words, now listen. Paul looks at them and goes, there is utterly a fault among you. Now these words, okay, grind in our ears. Why would you not just rather suffer loss? No, 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 you don't understand. They were mean to me. They were unkind to me. They said these things. They falsely accused me. I have a right to defend myself. Stephen never defended himself. He defended the faith. This is so countercultural to Western Christians to lay down our lives in grace. It doesn't mean we can't stand up. It can't mean we can't, we can't refute and dispute like Stephen did, but with the countenance of an angel. We can't be nice to our wives. We can't be kind in an argument to our husbands. Young people, drama, 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 offense, offense, offense. There is utterly a fault among you. You want to be a Christian? This much grace, please. I'm offending the church. Grow up and have some grace. I don't like this. Welcome to life. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not trying to be demeaning. I'm just saying this is it's tough, isn't it? This is indomitable grace. This is what grace is for. It was displayed by Stephen. 
church family, we cannot always be upset with each other because I didn't get invited to this, or I missed this, or you said this. It is utterly a fault. It is an evil if you can't return evil for good. We, we have to learn to do right when we have been wronged. We have to maintain the countenance of God when it's hard. We have to be bigger than circumstances. We have to be bigger than bad people. We have to be bigger and larger than any moment of injustice. We have to resist speaking evil when people are speaking evil of us. We need to serve when it's hard, when it costs us something. We've got to be graceful. Bring every thought, every, uh, every temper, every unkind word, every difficulty and trial to the obedience of Christ to be full of the Holy Spirit when the world is taking from us. Listen, we may not always get what we want, but we can't always lay what we get, what's coming our way at the feet of God. And every time someone's not right to us, now look up here, I'm almost done. And we do what's right, a miracle takes place. You want to see miracles? Be one. You want to see a wonder and a sign? Look at a man or woman transferred by the, transferred by the grace of God and respond the way that other people don't. What? We're all human. How about let's be Christian? You know, I'm not trying to make more here. I know Jesus was seated at the right hand of God when he ascended. He's standing when Stephen sees him. I think what often Jesus stands and applauds is not our worldly victories, but our grace-filled surrender to do what's right when it's hard. To be kind when wronged and return good for evil. God help us. Let me ask you to stand if you would.